Hi, I'm Dr. Jamil Sayaj. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about some deep stuff. I'm here to tell you that you're amazing. And often, the only person who can't see that is you. No matter who you are, what you do, or where you're from, there's greatness in you. Let's talk about it. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Jamil Sayaj and welcome to the Transformation Starts Today podcast, where I interview leaders, champions, and high performers from all walks of life as they share their story, the lessons they've learned along the way, and empowering perspectives to help you create an extraordinary life without regret starting today. Today we have with us the wonderful Elise Hittinger. Elise Hittinger is a courage coach and best-selling author. She is passionate about creating a life she loves, her horses, and the rest of her farm critters. Her latest book, Turn Your Family Around with Laughter, 12 Steps to Family Joy, is bringing laughter and joy to families and people of all ages. It is a story of how her childhood brought so much joy and taught her to seek joy in all she does. 30 years ago, she decided that New Year's Eve resolutions just weren't bringing her joy, so she set the goal to laugh 400 times a day. Too much to count and enough to strive for, joy and laughter each and every day. Her focus on laughter has enabled her to help others change their lives as well. She has a true passion for helping others to seek more joy in their lives, their relationships, and their families. Elisa, it is an honor to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and, and getting to share with your listeners. Um, thank you. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah. Yeah prior, good. yeah, prior to today, um, to give context to our conversation, uh, I got the fortune of receiving Elisa's book in the mail, and I've gotten to go through it several times, and so excited to share, you know, your story, the lessons you've learned along the way, and what have you, what you found that's helped create so much joy for yourself and others, because I think we, we really need in there right now <laughs> in the world. And so for my listeners who don't yet know you, Elise, they haven't heard your story, can you please tell us about who you are and what inspired you to write your book? Sure. And, um, you know, a funny story on the way to the podcast. Mm -hmm. My internet went down like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so really, that's just how I've lived my life. Um, you know, I don't think I realized until about five years ago that my childhood was extraordinary. Mm. And I was in a, I signed up for a business strategist. And in the coaching calls, I realized most of the people in those business coaching calls had traumatic or not good childhoods. So they didn't have a good example of what a good childhood was for their families. Mm. Um, you know, it was just so eye-opening to realize that I was raised different than a lot of people. And, you know, looking at the world these days, and there were just these, these women and, and men too had so many issues and problems. And, and so much of it stemmed from childhood trauma. And I looked back at my childhood and I thought, wow, that really wasn't how I grew up. And so I started to think, you know, I wanted to serve others. And I'm getting close to retirement age. I'm an electromechanical engineer. 
And I thought, well, how can I combine my wanting to serve others and the helping people with, with bringing joy into their own lives, their families, and maybe even helping their kids feel a little bit more joy. And so I really decided that my parents' story was extraordinary. Mm. Um, you know, they, they grew up together. They became friends, deep friends first before they got married. And then when they got married, they just added kids to the gang. <laughs> so, so I grew up in a, in a friendship, not a family. It, it was just a, a gang of friends. And that I realized I could share with others. Yeah, uh, I've, I've seen firsthand what you're describing, that so many people that I've worked with, they've had traumas and situations that were far from ideal when they were younger, and it negatively impacted them decades ago, but it's still negatively impacting them now. You know, a lot of the work I do falls into the like a mental and emotional release work, or at least it's a part of the work I do. And when I'm helping people kind of uncover all this stuff they've been through so they can release it, it's profound to think what a lot of people have been through and how it sabotages their success today. And one thing I think is so beautiful about you sharing your story and in the book that you wrote that so many people are benefiting from, very often we're not going to, you know, there's an expression, learn from the mistakes of others because you're never going to live it. You're never going to live long enough to make them all yourself in the same kind of way. Learn from the successes of others too and learn from how they're doing it, quote unquote, the right way so that your life can improve too. And you might've had, you know, parents that were abusive and grandparents and this and this and this, but there's that expression, like the buck stops here. Like it can stop right now with you so that with your children or your grandchildren or your soon to be children, or even just with yourself, your inner child, right? You're able to do that level of internal shift to create new results for yourself. And so I'd love to ask you about, in your book, you talk about practicing laughter and creating an atmosphere of joy and always searching for things to see as funny all day long. Can you speak to that, please? <laughs> sure. So even, even as we were going live on here, I don't know if it was quite when you started recording, but I had a fly crawl down my glasses, <laughs> you know, and, and so many people would have been distraught. I mean, they're getting ready to do a podcast and they're stressed and here comes a fly down their glasses and it was all I could do not to laugh but really once you start looking at things to laugh about more stuff comes to laugh and I and I've told my mom for years I said you know God sits up there and when he needs a little humor when he's getting a little stressed and has a little too much going on he's like what's Elise doing let's find out what Elise is doing and something will happen that is just completely off the charts hysterical. I mean, the things that have happened to me that are just crazy funny. And most people wouldn't think they're funny. Most people will get angry or it's taking time out of my day. Great example of that is I was late, you know, on a connection at the airport. We, we landed late. And I don't travel lightly, I'm a pack mule. So I've got my backpack on my back, I'm carrying a pillow, I'm carrying my purse. I am running through Denver airport and they've got those moving walkways. Yep, yeah. I'm in hiking boots and jeans and I go running around the end of the walkway and all of a sudden I'm face down on the walkway. Ooh. And there goes my pillow down the walkway, there goes my purse. 
my backpack's really heavy so I can't get up it's rolling my shirt up so <laughs> I'm trying to get up and I realized that my shoelace on my hiking boot got stuck in the moving walkway at the entrance oh wow. so I can't get my foot out of the boot so here I am trying to back up kneeling on this moving walkway I have to undo my boot run all the way down one boot on one boot off grab all my stuff at the other end run all the way back can't get the shoelace out of the thing so i have to go ask this big guy hey can you come here and stand here so i can pull my shoelace out now i missed my flight but it was so funny that it had happened and one of my friends was standing there in shock and he said you know you keep telling these stories and he goes, I just thought you were making them up. He goes, now I believe you. <laughs> he goes, I've never seen anything so funny. But it really is my choice to laugh at that stuff. You yes, know, it's, yeah. it's a choice. Something that you say in the book that I love, and it goes with what you just said about it, the choice. You say, it's not about not having stuff happen. It's about turning it around into something you can laugh about, right? And I often tell my clients and, people that I spend time with, this idea of, for me, my kind of model of the world is life happens in three stages. Stage one is life happens. Stage two is I interpret it. And stage three is I experience my interpretation. And when we realize that whether or not something is funny has nothing to do with the thing itself, it has to do with your interpretation of it. And so if you want more fun in your life, fun doesn't exist outside of you. You can't point to fun. Something I might point to like a carnival. That's fun for someone else. Clowns are their biggest nightmare, right? So it's like, that's not fun. That's a horror show over there. So it all depends on you. And so when you realize how can I interpret the situation in such a way that makes me feel joyful and lighthearted and it brings a lot of levity into my life. And if I can do that, why wouldn't I? And usually we just wouldn't because we we think the situation itself is inherently not fun or it is fun. But that is saying that step one is where the meaning is. Step one is life happens, that's neutral. So step one, you fell on the walkway, the shoe got caught, the fly went on your eye. That's all just step one, doesn't mean anything. But step two, what am I gonna make that mean? And then step three, I'm either gonna be really sad and depressed or I'm gonna be really laughing my face off and enjoying the moment and then making everyone else's experience around me that much better. <laughs> Absolutely, that is so true. Yes, um, you know, we get, we get to choose. And, you know, sometimes it's inappropriate. I will say I laugh when people get hurt, not intentionally. But we were trained as kids to laugh instead of crying. We were trained that, yes, stuff happens. Yes, it hurts. But laughter makes the pain a little bit less. Yeah. And, and I will say the one time that doesn't count is when you have broken ribs. When you have broken ribs, the laughter hurts. <laughs> but you still can laugh inside about it. It's still funny. And, and I think what happened kind of is by choosing to see the laughter in situations, I kind of see the world as a cartoon. I mean, I've, I kind of have converted everything into a cartoon and, and even stuff that's tragic can still have some light and some laughter and some joy come out of it. 
Yeah, it's reminding me of a Shakespeare quote that I think I'm only getting half of it, but it's something to the extent of a tragedy is a comedy, like seen from a different perspective. I, I think that's a Shakespeare quote, but something yeah. really interesting, I know in your book, you talk a lot about practical jokes and this, and growing up, that was such a big part of your life and your family and you know your parents would be involved in that too. And it comes from this space of so often we take life and ourselves, in my opinion, very seriously. And because we take it seriously, it's almost like we don't create the room or the space that this could be funny. But if we did, how could our life experience improve? And can you speak to the the practical joke? Maybe share some stories if you'd like, but how important it is to not take yourself so seriously. Oh yeah. There dinner time was our favorite practical joke time. I mean, there were practical jokes played all the time, but dinner, you'd be sitting there eating dinner and you'd be like eating your mashed potatoes. And all of a sudden you'd come across a black licorice jelly bean in the middle of your mashed potatoes. Or you'd look over, you know, my brother had a beard. He was a little bit older and I'd look over at him and he'd put corn in a smiley face. He'd gone into the bathroom, put chunks of corn in a smiley face on his beard. So he's sitting there eating with a smiley face of corn on his beard. And we would just get the giggles. We'd laugh so hard. I'd have milk coming out my nose. I've shot rice out my nose. You just, you couldn't help it. And we get to laughing so hard as a family at dinner that my dad would say, okay, next person that laughs has to do the dishes. And we'd all screw up our faces and you'd try really hard not to laugh. And without doubt, my mom would crack up every time. She'd be the one doing the dishes. She wouldn't be able to hold it in. Um, But practical jokes just became a way of helping others stay lighter too like even when my mom was stressed she worked two jobs my dad was owned a machine shop and he had customers he had to deal with so doing things you know we'd go put a rubber band on the kitchen sprayer so the next person that turns on the kitchen faucet would just be sprayed um usually it got whoever put the rubber band on but it just you know if they were having a bad moment it changed them around to being light and so practical jokes were just just a way of life for our family. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it just goes back to look at your own life right now. And not you, because anyone's listening, but look at your own life right now. And as you come from this headspace of thinking, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being my life is absolutely overflowing with laughter and fun and joy. And one is, it's I can't remember the last time I left. And then where are you on that? And thinking from what Elise is talking about in her perspective and her commitment of, I want to do 400 laughs a day. What could happen if you increase the amount of laughter? Maybe you're watching some comedy and maybe you're intentionally doing it in that way. But again, what if you could find the joy, the humor in the things that you used to think were challenges? It makes it so much easier to move through. And so I just really love that. Something in your story that really stood out to me that I wanted to get your perspective on You talked about creating and designing the family of your dreams and the importance of that. And so like the family comes together as a group and they really talk it all out. And if you could please speak to that, because I think a lot of families will benefit from that. Oh, yeah. So we went on a trip in 1976. We had 10 people in a 25 foot motorhome for three weeks. Mm. And everybody's like, you did what? 
how could you possibly do that? But it was a blast. We would, you had to go to bed in the right order. You had to get up in the right order. Everybody had a little tiny bag they had inside the motorhome and then a big bag under the motorhome. And practical jokes were played. We had card games going. We had um, just so much fun. But one thing we did when we talk about designing our family is even on that trip, every morning we would go through the, we had a triptych from AAA of what was in that area that day. And everybody would go through and write down their number one, number two, and number three choices. And then we put them all together and do the one that came out number one and number two. And if we had time, number three for the day's drive. Yeah. And so even if it was one of the kids that, you know, was, was a little kid, if it was their number one, they got to feel important and enjoy that they participated in picking that day's events. And so, and really that was what we did on a life scale, you know, with, with moving, with camping trips, with what were we going to have for dinner? I mean, every decision was more of a group decision than just your, you know, this is what I'm making for dinner and you'll like it or not. <laughs> but we have pancakes for dinner or, or we would have um, tacos for breakfast. You know, it was, it was, it was just much more of a group. What does everybody want to do? And that, that seemed normal to me. You know, I'd go over to friends' houses and I'd laugh. I'd laugh at dinner. And I found out later that they were like, man, I can't believe she was so disrespectful. And, and I didn't even notice. I mean, to me, it, it, it didn't even register that I was doing something not appropriate. Mm. And, you know, seeing how they had mom cooking dinner and they had no input in the decisions, it, it was interesting. And it, and it didn't register till later. I mean, I, I honestly, until, like I said, five years ago, didn't really think back to how different we, we were a family. We were a group of friends. Hey, what are we doing today? Hey, what are we doing tonight? You know, where are we going camping this summer? Yeah. Some two things there that come to mind. One from like a medical component, every single person will benefit from introducing more laughter into their life. You'll have more energy. Like at least said, your pain will decrease. Your immune system goes up, your mood increases, everything benefits across the board and people want to be around you more <laughs> in general. It's going to benefit you. So looking for opportunities to create the laughter, not waiting for it to happen. I have a chapter here or a section rather of your book that I want to just read aloud. I think that this is so powerful and everyone on the call, if you just did this, I think your family dynamic would improve so much. And this is a quote, imagine what a family can accomplish if they put their minds together, their hearts together and figure out how to bring joy into their lives, the family and the individuals each and every day. Sit down and have a family gathering and discuss your family vision. Here are a few things to get you started. What does the family want the vision of the future to look like? Number two, how far off from this vision is the family today? Three, what is the big vision for each person in the family? Four, what can be done to start working towards those dreams for the family and the individual? And finally, how can you make the economics of the dreams work? 
And I love that so much because people who are listening, like you said, it might not be that the little kid or even like the, the you know, the child, whatever their age is, feels maybe heard or respected or that their opinion is taken into account. But when as a group, you're moving towards a common goal and there's that kind of unification, it's that's such a powerful place to come from. And whenever when if you're the the son or the daughter, or even if you're one of the spouses, but you see that wow, my goal, my dream is being prioritized by the family. And there's a part, I didn't read this, but there's a part in the book where you talk about, I believe you really enjoy horseback riding and you were younger and you were going to be doing it and your family made some big shifts to make sure you were able to do that. Can you speak to that in the context of what I just read? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I was born ready to ride. My parents could not get me off of a merry-go-round when I was a year old. They would have, my dad would pry one hand off, my mom would pry the other hand off, and I'd be, manage to grab back on. So they ended up having to pay for like three rounds on the merry-go-round because they <laughs> couldn't get me off at a year old. So, you know, I bought my first pony, brought it home when I was five. And, you know, my parents were sailors, so they were like, well, okay, I guess now we have horses. <laughs> and they just helped me build the corral. They helped me with with getting to know how to raise horses and how to train horses. It was a learning experience for all of us. And then I really wanted to compete. And in order to do that, we actually had to sell the house, move to where we were closer to the training facility. And my parents had to take out a mortgage to get me a horse that I could actually be competitive on. And, you know, it was a group discussion, group decision. And, you know, there's my mom at three o'clock in the morning holding the horse for me to braid it. I did all the braiding myself because we didn't have any money. We really were a very poor family in the middle of Los Angeles. <laughs> and, and we just made things work. You know, I groomed two horse shows to pay for one horse show. I cleaned stalls to pay for my horse training. Um, you know, it was always, how can we? not we can't do that it was all how can we how can we get you into the horses yeah. um just a quick little point too on the laughter being healthy my dad's 94 my mom's 93 and they're still laughing yes. you know they're they're still going strong they still walk they still they just recently stopped driving about a year ago so mm -hmm. Something that comes to mind when you share that story. So I remember hearing, uh, it was like a short little Bob Marley clip. He was being interviewed and somebody said to him, are you rich? And Bob Marley looked at him with this like kind of curious look. And he said, what do you mean by rich? And the guy said, do you have a lot of money? And Bob Marley said, is that what it means to be rich? And then he had a whole little thing about that. And that, that came to mind because when you said, you know, we were, we were really poor. And in the on the from a financial sense, somebody can make that argument. But from a life perspective, given what I read in the book and your family stories, you were wealthy and rich beyond imagine. And so many people, I think, would you know, for lack of a better term, they die to have the kind of childhood that that you did. And I think that's so wonderful because first and foremost, you know, for everyone who's listening, the past is the past. But if you're alive right now and you're listening to this, you can make changes. There's something you can do to begin planning things as a family, to begin some practical jokes, to begin not taking yourself and life so seriously and finding the laughter, finding the joy and giving yourself permission to do something like that. So, yeah, absolutely. 
something that you mentioned in your book was this idea of your parents practiced parenting. And there was something in here that I wanted to read and then get your take on. I love this. You said, my parents practiced parenting. This really hit me while I was writing this book. They would try things, see what worked and what didn't work and make adjustments. Each kid was different. And what worked for one didn't necessarily work for the others. We all grew up individuals, happy and blessed. Could you speak to that, what that process was like for you when you realized that your parents practiced parenting? Oh, yeah. So the the best example is my girlfriend and I, um, we never got in trouble. I mean, we just were good kids. And we were probably four or five years old. And we're like, I wonder what it feels like to get into trouble. And so we dismantled my bedroom. We took everything out of the drawers. We took the sheets off the beds. I mean, we dismantled my room. And my mom, I, you know, we're talking about it later. My mom says, you know, it got really quiet in there. So she came and she opened the door and she's like, oh my gosh. So she says, wow, you guys look like you're having really a lot of fun. Make sure you put it all away when you're done. Close the door and walked out. And we were crushed. I mean, we were so like, oh, we can't even get into trouble. <laughs> and we did our best to put it all back. And that was an example of my mom had no idea what to do in that situation. You know, to open a door and see a completely dismantled room. Do you get angry? Do you? I mean, she didn't even know what reaction to have. And, and so she thought, well, I'll see if they'll just clean it up for me. And she admitted when I wrote the book, I did not find this out until I wrote the book. She actually had to go back in and redo everything, but she never told me, she never got mad. She never, she just let us try and put it all away. And then she went in later and redid everything without us even knowing it. And that, to me, said a lot about parenting. You know, it wasn't about us being in trouble. It was about how could she learn that we have consequences for what we do. And that was just, I mean, I was four or five and I knew what consequences were. And, and it was a deep, deep set um, knowing. And then on the same line, my sister she, we're all morning people, the whole family, we're up watching the sunrise. I mean, we're all morning people. And my little sister was born grumpy and not waking up till 10 o'clock in the morning. So we had to be quiet for until she would wake up. And I remember so much that my mom respected that, you know, with all the rest of us kids, my mom would come in first thing in the morning and throw the curtains open and say, it's a beautiful day out. What are we doing today? And with my little sister, she'd tiptoe in, she'd get us up, you know, she really respected that she was a different child and, and she needed different things than the rest of us. And so she learned parenting as she went, what worked and what didn't work for each kid. And, and that was just such a blessing to all of us. We're all so different. We're all individual and we're still all happy, joyful. I mean, all we laugh, the whole family laughs. Yeah. You know, the story of your bedroom and you know, I know that was in the book and that really spoke to me. I'm glad you brought it up. And it's, you know, there's an expression that I really take to heart and love. And the idea is that there is nothing worth losing your peace and your joy over. 
And when we realize that we keep things in perspective. So here is your mom walking into this room. And like you said, there's a, there's a myriad of choices of how she could have responded in that moment. And a lot of people would have come from anger and they would have yelled and they would have raised their voice. They would have done something, but I'd imagine I haven't had the direct experience. I'm not a parent at this point, but I'd, I'd imagine that, that there would be some regret after that, where you probably feel bad. I just yelled at my four-year-old, like maybe, <laughs> and I just did A, B, and C. And I know that like that wasn't there. And even though you were trying to get in trouble in general, it's like, I know they were just having fun. I know that wasn't their intention. And usually there's some apology or there's some like, at least my peace is disturbed now because I feel bad about what I just did versus the way your mom handled it which in the moment I'm reading your book, I'm like, wow, that is brilliant. I love that, you know, the way that your family would would take what, whatever they, what, it's like you take whatever's given to you and you turn it into something that serves you. You turn it into something that you can take joy from. And the way your mom did it, I was like, wow, you guys look like you're having a good time. Like enjoy and clean up when you're done. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't think I would have had that reaction. <laughs> like your mom is uh, very conscious. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, and and I don't have kids either. And that that was part of my reason for writing the book because I didn't have kids to show them this and I thought, well, how how do I get the word out cuz I chose not to have kids? How do, how do I get the word out? I'm like, I'll write a book. <laughs> Maybe it'll help some other kids out there. <laughs> There's something that um you spoke about in the book that I think is a good segue. You talked about guiding principles and the importance of having guiding principles for the family and attached to, you know, the vision and what everyone's doing and kind of how we're going to lead this kind of the ship forward. Could you talk about that and the importance of it? Yeah. So um, with guiding principles, it's, it's, it's hard for me to describe it because I lived it, but for us, it was love. It was peace. And I'm not sure I can remember the other one off the top of my head. I apologize. <laughs> but, but really, it was a way to, when you're making a decision, it was easy to say, is this out of love? Or is this out of anger? Is this out of joy? Is this out of peace? I can choose to be loving in this moment or not. And I struggled with my little sister, her and I. Um, we had our challenges, uh, you know, with her being grumpy in the morning and me being a morning person, I saw her as changing our life because now we had to be quiet in the mornings. And yet I still was able to go outside and play and respect it. And I was still able to make my choices based on loving her not necessarily enjoying her in the moment because nobody enjoys a grumpy person. <laughs> I will just, I mean, even my mom admits that you don't enjoy a grumpy person, <laughs> but you still can love her. You can love her in the fact that, that she was not a morning person and, and you could still, I mean, I, I remember thinking how much I loved her and would do things in the afternoon with her when she was happy and and respect that she needed that morning time. And so it really was about choices and those guiding principles that, you know, peace. Peace is so important that stress 
does not lead to peace. And, and you can choose to worry and be stressed, or you can choose to just figure out what you need to do to be in peace with mm. whatever the situation is. Yeah, something that, another word that for me at least resonates, like guiding principles. And then I think, what would be another way of saying that? And for me, in the work I do with people, it would be values and getting really clear for everyone who's thinking about their family, their soon-to-be family, their, their older family, younger family, whatever it is, what is important to you, both as individuals and as a family? And what are your core values? And there's an expression that I learned from Tony Robbins back when I was 15. He says, when, when your values are clear, decisions are easy. And it's the idea that if you're having a hard time making a decision, it's because in that moment, you're probably not crystal clear on what's important to you. You're probably not crystal clear on what matters most, because when you know that, the decision becomes a lot easier because you can see which which option, assuming there's two, but if there's more than two, but which option is in alignment with what's most important to you. So I remember in the book you talk about one of the values had to do with um, you know health and exercise and being out and about. And when you know that's a value, there's all those stories where your dad comes home on a Friday and he says, hey, like we're all going to the beach or like we're going to be out for the weekend. We're going to be in nature. We're going to hike. We're going to sail. We're going to do that. And you talked about being active very often. And that's an example, like that's a value that when your parents said that we want this kind of family and you build towards that, you make all your decisions that way. So I challenge for everyone who's listening to go through on a piece of paper with your partner, if you have one and say, what kind of family do we want? What If your kids are young enough, then you can do it by yourselves. But if, as they get older, you can involve them too. What's important to us? What kind of life would we love as, as a family, as a unit? And then build towards that. You know, when you live intentionally, you tend to get what you're after. But when you live unintentionally and you're not deliberate, then like whatever happens, happens. And it turns into almost like a mistake or an accident rather. Yeah. One, one thing I'd like to add to that is so many people go to school, get an education, work and save all this money and pay all these bills so that when they retire, they can enjoy life. And my parents saved a little bit they they have had a comfortable retirement but they lived life we sailed we we had a motorhome we had the sailboat we we went camping we went we they did not wait for retirement to enjoy life mm -hmm. and even with as many hours as my dad worked he would come home from work have dinner with us and go back to work and and it was just, and we, and we play a board game or whatever before he went back to work. So he had late nights, but they didn't wait for retirement to live life. I mean, we lived life as a family and it was so powerful to see how many people work themselves to the bone and stress so that they can save up for retirement. And that was just such a foreign concept to me. But, you know, why, why in the world would you save all that money? Why wouldn't you enjoy it now? Yes, put enough away for a rainy day, but, but don't put enough away for a rainy life. <laughs> Absolutely. It brings up in my mind the distinction between creating and waiting. And if we come from the space of, I want to have all that things, but I think I can't do it till I retire. Now I'm waiting but I might be waiting and let's say my kids are young and there's a certain joy that I've been told that when your kids are really young, you know, they're not going to be the same when they're older. 
And so it's like, there's something there that you miss out on if you procrastinate on that, if you think you're going to wait, but your family stepped into that creator mentality and said, no, no, we're going to save, but how can we make the joy happen now? How can we come from this space of having a good time, of having our adventures, of having our family experiences, creating our memories? And I might imagine, you said both your parents are in their 90s, when they reminisce and they look at the, look at the life that they've lived and created, there's so much joy to look back on and say, wow, you know, we did that. And yet so many people, unfortunately, if they continue to come from that space of waiting, it's I'll do that when I'll make my dreams. I'll make my dreams come true when I'll be happy when I'll be successful when I'll start that family when <laughs> when in reality, the only time you're going to change your life is today. And that's the foundation of this podcast. <laughs> and so when we come from that space, everything changes. Stop waiting. Start creating. What is the what's the one action you could take in this moment that would meaningfully make a difference for you and move you in that direction? And so something I wanted to ask you, given everything you shared in the book, given what your life experience has been, what were the most important lessons that you learned growing up that you can share with our listeners? I, I think absolutely the most important lesson that I learned was was to to live life. You know, I see I see people that don't that fight it. You know, I think about floating down a river versus mm -hmm. paddling up a river. And I'm floating down the river. Whatever comes my way, I'm going to enjoy whatever comes my way. I am not going to keep trying to paddle up a river to do something that isn't in the flow. Yeah. Um, it, you know, that's my family went with the flow. I mean, we had, you know, the, our machine shop was robbed and they beat my dad. And he came home laughing about it because they took the cash box, which was right next to the payroll deposit or the, the big deposit envelope. They left the big deposit envelope, which had all the money in it. He'd already taken it out of the cash box. So he came home laughing after being beaten up because they didn't get the real <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> so, you know, it was a horrible situation, but he went with the flow. It wasn't anything he could change. You know, it, it just... It, and, and even starting his business, you know, he was working for the telephone company and his brother and he found a drill press for sale. And they're like, wow, that's a really cheap price for a drill press. It needs some work, but what if we go into business together? So they found a cheap drill press in an ad that they said, God's telling us, here's the drill press. Let's go create a business. And and it's just, it was very much go with the flow. It just that, I think that is my most precious gift that I learned in, in childhood is that you just, stuff comes up and doors open, doors close, windows open, windows close, jump through them. <laughs> I love your go with the flow metaphor. I share something similar um, just without the paddle, <laughs> but the idea is, you know, there's this like kind of river of life and some people are floating down the river with the current and the other ones are swimming against it and the water is smacking them in the face. And they're wondering, why is this so difficult? It shouldn't be this hard. Why is it so challenging? I don't get it. And they look to their left and their right as they're swimming every now and then. And they see people just kind of drifting by, relaxed, like having a good time, waving. And they go, 
why is their life so easy? Like, I, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's not fair. But an aspect of it is, like you said, something happens and you really only have a couple options. Option one is you resist it. And option two is you accept it. <laughs> and if you come from the resistance, life is going to be more painful. There's going to be more suffering. But when you can embrace the moment instead of resist it, like the example with your dad, like you said, very unfortunate thing to happen. Absolutely. And as he's coming back home, it's already happened. Like, so he, if he stays in that negative headspace, if he stays in that not fair, shouldn't have happened, all that, none of that has anything to do with reality. It's just the resistance to what was. And then you continue to feel that heaviness and that pain and that whatever else it would be until you finally allow it to go. But what your dad did in that situation, and it sounds like what you and a lot of your family have kind of trained yourself to do, something happens and you find the joy, the joy or the humor in it as soon as possible. It might take a millisecond. It might take a few minutes. But when you do find it, you grab onto it and it changes the whole experience. And like you said, it empowers you. It's not about like a Pollyannish kind of thing. It empowers you because from that space, you go, okay, you start laughing about it. You start feeling better about it. Now from here, what can I do? How can I, what step can I take to get where I want to be? Versus if we're in that disempowered state, the creativity goes out the window and we're kind of in that kind of hopeless kind of space and nothing really meaningful changes at that point. And so I just love that uh, that metaphor of going up, going, going with the flow and not going against the current. Yeah, one thing, um, you know, even as an adult, I hated dentists. I'm not good with the dentist. And, and I'd pass out in the waiting room to get my teeth cleaned. <laughs> and I went into the dentist one day and it was one of those days that God's sitting up there, hey, I need a little humor. What can I do? And I was getting a crown. So the dentist get, hands me the mirror and says, here, I want to show you the, the color of the crown and make sure it's good. And so I, I, I'm like, I can't move my arm. And he's like, what do you mean you can't move your arm? And my stress level's going up. I mean, I'm like, oh, I can't move my arm. I can't grab the mirror. My arm won't move. And I'm freaking out, like, like completely stressed. And the dentist is starting to get stressed. He goes, I didn't do anything to your arm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the, the Novocaine he gave me went to my arm. I'm paralyzed. I mean, you know, all the thoughts that go through my head. And, and he looks and he goes, oh, I think we glued your arm to your leg. <laughs> so here's a situation. Immediately, I was in hysterics. I mean, immediately, I was in hysterics. I could not stop laughing because I just knew that that was just my stress level and my way of humor, you know, happening. It, he'd, he'd never had it happen to anybody else. It's the first time he'd ever even seen it. it took him 45 minutes to get my arm unstuck from my leg. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's still, it's one of my funniest stories. And, and we laughed and laughed. And that's, you go through stress and you can have stress, but then choose to find something funny about it. I mean, just choose to laugh. Yeah, yeah. And that that was just, and and you can learn it. That's a learned skill. That isn't. We're not born maybe knowing how to laugh at stuff, but but I certainly learned how to. Yeah, 
It reminds me of that Picasso quote, something to the extent of all children are born artists. The key is staying an artist as you grow up. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but children on average laugh. And again, I'm going to make this number up, but it's not too far off. But it's like, you know, hundreds of times a day. And the average adult, it's like 30 or less or something like that. It's, oh, it, wow. it, it's a big disparity. And so when we realize that, well, what has changed? Because on the one hand, it's still you. And so it's like, well, as you've gotten older, you've been conditioned. You've learned certain things. Kind of like you said, you go to your friend's house and you're at dinner and all of a sudden they think laughing is being disrespectful. So now it turns into that makes sense why they're not going to be laughing. Given the way they see the world, laughter is going to be like only for a very specific set time. Not it can happen at any moment in your life. But kids might laugh at anything. And so what can happen if we reconnect to that inner child with your story that you shared with the dentist? Notice that that falls into that kind of uh, kind of a life blueprint that I kind of came up with this idea of. So life happens There you were seemingly stuck in the chair. Your arm couldn't move. And then the interpretation, oh, they messed up the Novocaine. I'm paralyzed. Like, I'm never going to be able to move my arm. It's like, what a horrible day. And like that turns into the experience that we have. But then the moment you realize, oh, no, my arm's fine. I'm just glued. Now it's funny. In that same way, though, what shifts is our interpretation. And so if you're listening and you're going through something challenging right now, just as a loving challenge, what are some other ways you can interpret the experience? And you might even use the question that Elise posed, but it's like, how can I find this funny? Like, what? where is the humor in this? What about this is a little bit funny if I think about it that way? And all you got to do is kind of peck at it. Once you finally find something and you think of it like uh, you're using it like a gateway in. And when you finally find it, it starts to get a little bit funnier and a funnier and a funnier. Sometimes you're laughing at your situation because it's just so tragic, but in a fun way. Like, how could this have happened? And it's, it's like the Murphy's Law thing. Like, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. <laughs> and oftentimes you, you can find a lot of humor in that. And so I just want to acknowledge you, Elise, because I think that there's something really powerful and inspiring and profound to have someone in your life, in this case, you're, you're that person, but to have someone in your life that finds the lightheartedness in a situation, that person can be just like the glue that holds the family together, opposed to the glue that holds the arm down on the table. <laughs> but it can be the glue that holds the, the situation together, the person that makes the heaviness disappear. And it's like, what a gift to be that for others. And like you said, we all can learn that and we all can do that. And I think it's uh, maybe more accurate to say, I think it's Aristotle who said, um, you don't really learn anything. It's, it's like you remember it. It's like you already know it to some degree in that same kind of way. Like I said, kids laugh all the time. And if they're not doing it as adults, it's because they unlearn something that, that they already knew. And so now it's let's reconnect. Let's go back. And so with that being said, you know, the foundation of my work and of this podcast, like I alluded to earlier, is to help people create an extraordinary life without regret. If somebody came to you and they wanted to know how to create that type of life, what type of advice would you give them? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's why I wrote the book was, was to help people. You know, the advice I have is to look for things to laugh at. Um, it, it takes practice at first if you're not used to laughing, but set the goal of 400 laughs a day. I mean, just set that goal. It's a goal that's big enough. You're not going to try and track 400 laughs a day. 
But if you're thinking at the end of the day, wow, I only laughed four times, maybe tomorrow I can laugh more and really think about looking for things to laugh at, you'll start to find things to laugh at. And it's a snowball. I mean, once you find a few things to laugh at, it feels so good that you start looking for more things to laugh at. Uh, you know, the day I left the top off the blender, turned the blender on, <laughs> you know, it was a major mess to clean up, but it was hysterical. And, and even, you know, my mom boiled hard boiled eggs on the stove in the camper. And we went into town and forgot all about the fact that the hard boiled eggs were boiling on the stove. And so when I got back to the camper, they were all over the roof of the camper. I mean, that's funny. Yes, you have to clean it up. But if you look for things to laugh at, you'll start to see things to laugh at. And, and oh my gosh, the belly laughter from my family, you just can't even help it. And once you start laughing, I mean, there's times I have to lay on the floor because I can't breathe. I'm laughing so yeah. hard. My cheeks hurt. My stomach hurts. But it feels so good. I mean, the stress just melts away from life. Yeah. Something I love so much about the, the 400 laughter goal per day. Like you said, you're not necessarily going to track it. But the thing is, what you pay attention to typically grows because you're putting your focus there. So if the intention is simply, I'm going to laugh 400 times a day and I'm going to look for what's funny, you might only laugh one additional time that day, the day you set the goal. Or maybe you were the next day or the day after, but it starts that snowball effect like you alluded to. And so now maybe a week, a month, a year goes by and you might be laughing 20, 150 more times, whatever it is per day. That's a whole different quality of life, but it only started because you set the intention. Yeah. And and then so a story comes to mind too. When you talked about the, the egg story and the blender story, this happened to me about a year ago. And uh, I haven't thought about this since. And it's really funny. Just the idea of, I was making eggs and before I put them in the pan, you know, I, I, I opened them and I'm going to scramble them. And so I kind of put in this, this container, added all the seasonings in there first, and then I poured it into the pan after. And I put it all in there and it was all ready to go. And then I turned around and when I came back, I knocked it down and it went everywhere, went behind the counter, behind the stove. <laughs> you can't even really get to that, right? And there was like a a one second, beautifully loud expletive. <laughs> and then I was laughing. And there was this like moment of like, oh my gosh, why did that happen? But then it turned into, it's it's like the old expression, don't cry over spilled milk or something like that. It's already spilled. I can't do anything about that. So I was cleaning it up and I was laughing as I was cleaning it up that that's never happened before. And that's, a, it's going to be a fun story to tell later. And so here, and here we go. <laughs> but it, it happens. And I love, like you said, yeah, we still got to clean it up. There's still the consequence of whatever it is. But how are you going to be while you're cleaning it up? Are you cleaning it up with the belly hurting because you're laughing so hard? Or are you cleaning it up in this like being ashamed of yourself kind of perspective? It's a whole different quality of life. And that's where you get the power of how you want to interpret it. And so I absolutely love it. <laughs> One thing I'd love to ask you is if you could go back knowing what you know now and speak to 18 year old Elise, is there anything that you would share with her to do differently? You know, given the way you see the world right now, maybe she saw it that way, given how you grew up, but is there anything you would share with her now to kind of take it to the next level that anyone listening could benefit from? Yeah. And, 
And a little bit side topic. So I'm a fear to courage coach. And, and how I got there was several different ways. But my 18-year-old self let fear get in the way of my joy. Mm. And, and, you know, I don't talk about this in the book, but I had a, I had a person that was telling me that he was going to kill my family if I didn't do X, Y, Z. And so for two years, as much as I laughed when I was home with my family, as much as I spent time laughing and feeling good, the fear he imparted on me with his words was not worth it. The fear I had around what he he had said was way worse than what actually happened. So as soon as I stopped the fear and went back to being my normal bubbly self and told him to take a hike, the take a hike, he didn't have the courage to do what he said he was going to do. And I had spent two years afraid of what he said. And that, if I had to go back and say something to my 18-year-old self, I would say, don't ever let fear stop your joy. Do something to get rid of that fear. There's no reason fear should stop your joy, ever. Yeah, I love that quote so much. Don't ever let fear stop your joy. So, 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 so true. Like uh, like you alluded to, so often, you know, I was just telling a client this earlier today, you know, if we're like fairly analytical and we're trying to think about the future and we're thinking about 15, 20 different scenarios, all of that is going on in your head. But, and there's a, there is some value to it because you're planning and that could be cool. And at the same time, it's all going on in your head. None of it's real. And so you're not actually dealing in reality. And so sometimes we get, we get strung out on the fear of what if, and then that prevents us from doing something right now that would actually get us to where we want to be. And so yeah. not letting fear run the show, letting love run the show, love and excitement and joy and laughter. And so as we begin to wrap up, Elise, can you share with us what's the biggest decision that you've made or a risk maybe that you've taken that you're deeply grateful for and why? You're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the biggest risk was writing this book was sharing sharing this story with others, sharing my parents' story that it, that it might help one other person, that it might help one child, that it might help one. It's going through the nursing home where my parents are. You know, everybody's reading it because they see themselves as kids when, when they were back in their, their day and, and they, they see themselves in my, in my parents' story. And, you know, it, it was very scary to write the book. And, and I think mostly because it wasn't my story. I mean, it was my parents' story through me. And I wanted to get it right. And I just was, that, that was the biggest risk, biggest decision. It was so hard to put myself and my family out there, you know, that, but, but I felt compelled that it might help somebody. Mm. I absolutely loved it. And for what it's worth, it has helped my life. And I've shared it with other people and had beautiful conversations with them. And they thought it was so wonderfully amazing. And so it's already helped at least one. <laughs> and I know it's helped many more than that. 
So thank you. And one thing that you model so beautifully for everyone who's listening, you can choose to be afraid to share yourself and there's a consequence to that. Or you can choose to be have courage. And what I often say is courage doesn't mean you're afraid. Courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. Courage means you're afraid, but you do it anyway. And when we realize that whether I'm afraid or not, that's got nothing to do with whether or not I take an action. I can take an action despite how I feel. You know, I might have to, I might not, not have to, I might want to go for a walk, but then I don't feel like it, but I can go on a walk anyway. <laughs> and so in that same type of way, are you living from that space of fear and you're afraid to share yourself with the world authentically out of whatever the fear was? Anyone who's heard episode one of this podcast where I share my story and I talk about that I was afraid of rejection, that I was afraid of of the people not accepting me for who I was. And because of that, I was dimming my shine and robbing the world of who I could be. And I find that so many of us, we do that. But coming from the other side of that, I can tell you it's so much more rewarding and enjoyable to live your life and play all out as the real you. To share of who you truly are with the world, you you not only benefit, but you give other people the permission they didn't know they needed to do it the same themselves. And so please thank you again so much for sharing your story and would love to ask you as we begin to wrap up, what is exciting right now that you're either working on or working towards or experiencing in your life? Right now I'm getting my courage coaching up and running. Um, I'm putting the framework together right now and really just helping people that want to find courage and don't know how to go about it. So I've, I've found a gift. I've been helping some others with their courage and they're like, you got to help others. So I'm, I'm working on getting my courage coaching going. And that, that's just so special to me. Awesome. And so can you please share what are the best ways for our listeners to get in connection with you, to learn more about where they can get your book and about your courage coaching? Oh, so it's, it's my website is Elise Hittinger. So it's just my full name, elisehittinger.com. And then my books are on Amazon. You can search for Elise Hittinger on there and you can see my books. Perfect. And I'll have the links to everything in the show notes. For those on video, I have her book right here. And if you're on audio, it's called Turn Your Family Around with Laughter, 12 Steps to Family Joy. And it's a fantastic cover with all these smiley faces. (laughs) And so that is, as I smack my screen, (laughs) that is... uh, what the book looks like and the title of it. You can search it. I got, um, it, it's, it is on Amazon. And so thank you again so much, Elise, for being with us. Thank you for everyone who tuned in. If you enjoyed our conversation, it would mean a lot. If you left a review, if you subscribed to the channel, if you shared it with at least one person that would benefit, I'm sure we all know people in our lives who could benefit for some more laughter, some more joy, and hearing from someone who's made her whole life all about that, I think would really go a long way. Elise, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close? Thank you. Thank you for for having me on and thank you to your listeners. Perfect. You are so welcome. Like I mentioned at the start, my life's work is to help leaders, champions, and high performers to experience more happiness, peace, and fulfillment as they create an extraordinary life without regret. If I can be of support to you in your journey to help you create the life that you want in 10 months rather than 10 years, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can schedule that on my website, jamilsayage.com. And if you're looking for other podcast episodes, if you're looking for content, I've, over the years, I believe I've put out about uh, four four to 500 videos, as well as about eight, 900 pieces of content in total, 
all for free. You can access that on my Instagram at Dr. Jamil Sayed, DR, and then my name, or on Facebook or LinkedIn at Jamil Sayed. I'll have the links to that as well in the show notes. Most people's favorite day to change their life is tomorrow. And that's why they stay stuck. That's why I call the, the, the podcast Transformation Starts Today, because today, like I said earlier, is the only day that you're meaningfully going to make a difference in your life. So listen to what we talked about, pay attention to it, take notes, then act on your notes and you, you'll be laughing your way <laughs> to a beautiful and more, be more beautiful experience of life. Thank you again so much. Wishing you all the best. Take care. Thank you for being with us today. If this conversation served you, it would mean a lot if you left a review and shared this with anyone who may benefit. An extraordinary life without regret is available to you now. Choose it. It's your time.